And now, back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more sports and torts on TalkZone.com. Elliot, I learn new things every day. I didn't realize the popularity of this women's softball. Yeah, no, that's why we show up every Thursday, right? Exactly. I mean... She's throwing in the mid-60s. They're hitting low 70s with that delivery. I mean, those baseball boys have no chance that they get used to it. Yeah, I'd, I'd be swinging about the time the catcher's throwing it back. But let's get to someone who has covered baseball, football, basketball for, let's see, how many decades, Elliot? Nine. Does that uh, sound about right? On the phone, we got Hall of Famer. He's in two Hall of Famers, the baseball and basketball, Bob Wolf. How you doing, Bob? Good. Good to speak to you guys. We just had a girl in studio plays for the Women's Softball League here in Chicago. You probably remember when they were playing back in the 40s, the Women's uh, the the baseball, baseball League. <laughs> yeah, they were just starting out. In fact, all the pro leagues, except for uh, college football, was starting out then. Major League Baseball, but, you know, pro basketball and pro hockey were, were really just regional sports then. Okay. So you're a 90-year-old broadcaster. How'd you get started? They, they, did, they did have radio when you were a kid, right? <laughs> Yeah, Abraham Lincoln was there, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I started with radio, and times have changed since then. During the early days of radio, all they asked about was your voice. You didn't have to do much else. You had to describe the games, and that took place for many years. They had some great voices in those days, Mel Allen and Ted Husing and people like that. And then they said, look, let's hype up the shows by getting people who actually have content. Because Mel and, and Reb and the rest of those guys described things, but they didn't wander into strategy or analysis or human interest and so forth. So they brought in the uh, the former ball players and the big league managers and the coaches and the rest. And in all the sports, they had the same thing. So the word use sort of evaporated, but they were coming up with inside content. And then the third phase we're in right now, they said, you know, let's make it more entertaining. So they said, let's bring in people who are different, have strange views, are very loud, proclaim their stuff. You may not be right, but nobody cares. People listen to them anyhow. And so we, we started into the entertainment phase. So I figured in the book I explained how one is part journalist and part entertainer, which is what TV and radio are now. Yeah. Now in Milwaukee, they have Bob Uecker, who is fits the role of the former player and also uh, the entertainer. You know, he was on TV with Mr. Belvedere. That's right. How, how do you assess his work? I think that he he and he did something that very few people have been able to do in sports casting, and that is bring in humor. And he was one of the great deadpan humorists of all time. But humor is what made him such a star. Of course, he knows baseball. He describes it well, so he's a fine broadcaster. But that extra humor is what, what really goes over these days. Bob, I got your book, and I read it, that just came out, Bob Wolf's Complete Guide to Sports Casting. And I didn't realize how many people you've trained over the years in your classes. I mean, here in Chicago, Dan Jiggets would come to New York every weekend to have you teach him. That's, that's correct. Is he still doing well there? He's still doing well. He's doing things on Comcast Sports. He had his TV show last year for a while. That's great. Well, he, he flew all the way in just to take the course. Well, the things that I taught them really is that talent is a strange word. Thank everybody in the radio TV business on the air is called the talent. Which, which I think is sort of overstating the case. But one thing they do share in common, they have appeal and they wear well. Now, if you have appeal, that's the thing that counts. For example, in New York, 
broadcast here and that I'm well familiar with, Phil Rizzuto had great appeal because he was so natural. His word use was the same. On every home run, he'd yell, holy cow, holy cow, and that's about it. Didn't describe it, but he was such a natural guy. He talked about the mistakes that he made. He should have had stronger glasses. He would have seen what happened. <laughs> People laughed at him. And, uh, but he, he, he signed more autographs than anybody else in the TV or radio booth. So appeal is very important, and appeal can be done in many different ways. Now, did Phil steal that holy cow from Harry Carey? Because I can remember as a kid growing up in St. Louis listening to Harry Carey and Jack Garagiola and uh, Jack, yeah. Joe, Joe, yeah. Joe Garagiola and Jack Buck. You know, and Harry had the holy cow way back in the 50s. You're absolutely correct. Harry Carey was the first holy cower. Now, Phil came along. I'm not sure you even heard Harry Carey. He, Phil was one of those guys that really, uh, he'd get up in the middle of a game, wander off, talk to somebody else, and when they came back, they look at his score sheet, and he said, NL, not listening. <laughs> you worked <laughs> with Joe Garagiola for years doing the baseball games. Oh, Joe is, an, a great, Joe is a terrific humorist and a great strategist, and it was, it was such a pleasure to work the NBC TV Game of the Week with him. I mean, he, he was, it was a terrific partner, never had better one. Now, in the TV booth, you have a little more time for Joe to tell some stories. I remember listening on radio, and... He, he was always telling these wonderful stories that would stretch out for two or three batters, but it was definitely worth listening to. And he was the first broadcaster I can remember that really did bring humor into the booth. He he was so quick-witted that the stuff that just came out of him was, was, was classic material. When you're doing the color of a game, it's a little different because you got to get it in and out pretty quickly. But uh, Joe was one of the, the booth guys I loved to work with, for example... If there were two guys warming up on the bullpen, well, the announcer likes to say what their names are. So Joe had his binoculars on them, and I say there's warming up in the bullpen. Joe would write down Smith on the left, Brown on the right, and I'd go right into it. Well, most announcers would, uh, the color guys just say, yeah, that's Smith and Brown, but Joe would always help me and I'd help him. So it was a, he, was, he was a great individual to work with. You took a chance, though, when you started because TV was in its infancy, and you basically found your niche in TV, took a chance. A lot of people thought you were crazy, but nowadays, now we're going from TV to the Internet. It's like a whole new game, and people, I think, have to realize, let's take the chance with the Internet here because this is a whole new medium. Well, basically, one has the first thing was to learn if they're doing TV is that it's not the number of words you speak. People have long had that assumption that don't speak so much as on TV it's what you say. For example, I would classify myself, suppose I was going to a ball game and had a guy sitting next to me who was my good friend. Well, he's watching the game with me. I wouldn't say to him, that's Joe's into the windup. Here comes the pitch. He swings and misses. The guy can say, hey, Bob, I can, I can see. What do you tell me that for? I could say to him, this guy's a really unusual windup, doesn't he? Or... He's, do you think he has the same velocity in the ball, not just bringing it up chest high, and that if he, he brought it way up over his head? And let, I, I'm commenting what he's seeing as if the guy next to me were talking about, about the game. So on, on TV, you're just sort of talking about what people can see. But most of the early guys doing uh, moving from radio to TV didn't have that knack. They had to learn it. 
now in radio, you get the guys who will say, well, let's look at the replay. And I'm listening to the radio and I'm going, what replay? You know, it's, it's like they don't understand that medium any more than the guy who's talking nonstop on television. It, it, it you know, boggles my mind, which happens easily. Well, basically, in, in radio, you get, in the beginning, TV overshadowed it. Because in radio, day after day, the same guys were doing it. And they became good friends, electronic friends. Some of them were not very good, but you get used to their idiosyncrasies. Well, that's good old Joe, good old Sam. You know, the, you, you abided by them. But on TV, as far as journalism goes, you got to know what a good story is. But words are really unimportant. For example, here in New York, Michael Kay does the Yankees on the TV. And in a home run, he'll say, see you as the ball was sailing into the bleachers, he, he, he now brings it down to two words. On, on, on TV, Marv Albert doing basketball just says, yes. You know, they, you don't need many words on TV because you can see what's happening out there. So it's, it's a different medium. It's not what I call a true journalism medium. It's a, it's a TV, it's a medium of putting captions on pictures. I'll tell you what, though. You didn't just do baseball, basketball, football. You also covered the first presidential parade back, what, <laughs> 60 years ago? Well, I always, basically, everybody tries to get an edge in what they're doing. And particularly in the early days of TV, I figured, how could I get an edge? Well, I figured I was the Dumont TV representative. Dumont is no longer in business, that network. But they're one of the, the starting networks. And they chose me because they felt like I was their best ad-libber. So I got the assignment. And NBC sent down their best guy named Ben Grower, and Doug Edwards, the CBS representative. And they came down and had great information about past presidential inaugurals, the parades and so forth. But it was just written notes, whereas I said, you know, the one way I can win this, this is TV. I'll go out to the airport in Washington where they're building the hangars, which building the floats to put in the hangars, and these floats would show each state what the symbols of the states were, the crops they had or the buildings they had or whatever whatever they, they thought was important about the state, they'd show on the floats. So I, I took a look, I made diagrams of all the floats, what each thing represented. When I came back to do the TV, every time they came to me, I'd talk about, now take a look at this float, you see that big thing sticking up, that represents the castle of so-and-so, you see on the side this, that represents that. Whereas the guys on, on, on the TV were talking about in the past inaugural, they did this, they did that, reading their notes. Pretty soon I ended up doing the whole show for the most part because I was doing the TV version. And I think uh, getting the edge is just figuring out what the public wants to see or hear. So you were very versatile the way Jack Brickhouse, another longtime broadcaster here in Chicago, was. Did you enjoy the non-sports stuff as much? Yeah, I did. Say it again. Did you enjoy your non-sports broadcasting coverage oh, I, as much as sports? the way that I worked. You learn broadcasting and sportscasting the same way in, in a school you learn history or geometry or algebra or philosophy or whatever they teach you. It, this is all acquired knowledge. We're all in the sports business because we have acquired sports knowledge. But basically, with that feeling... If anybody said to me, hey, Bob, you ever do a horse show? 
I would do a horse show. I know, of course I know horses. How about dog shows? I love dogs. I, yeah, dog shows are just right. Or how about gymnastics? Absolutely. How about this sport? So I never said no, and I've done every variety of sports imaginable to do, and after four or five years doing it, they thought I was an authority. Did you do lingerie football? Do what? Lingerie football. Have you broadcast that yet? No, I have not that. Okay. Something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> Surprising that the Westminster Kennel Show has become as popular as it has on television? Now, oddly, at, at Madison Square Garden for 50 years, I did every sport the garden had except wrestling, which I, did, <laughs> I thought was more fakery than sports for the, <laughs> the guys who were superb athletes. Uh, so I, I decided not to do that. But I did everything from the, the women's sports I did the Rangers for many years, the Knicks for many years, all their college basketball, all the different specialty shows, all of them. And after a while, I, I was like the voice of the garden for any sport they had. But basically, when it came to sports like the dog show, I like I to hike this up with a lot of humor routines. Uh, I'd, I'd sing on the dog show. I'd tell funny stories. I'd kid around with the dogs. And you can't do that with horses, but <laughs> but each sport has a different way of doing it, and I and I enjoy the variety of of the, of the challenge. I see that you covered Richard Nixon. What was he like? <laughs> well, Richard Nixon was an avid baseball fan, and he went to the games often. But when he wasn't, when he was the vice president, he was always sending me communiques about. They put in a plug for Pete Ramos, the pitcher, or Camilo Pasquale, or Jim Lemon, or. Carmen Killebrew, whoever it be at the, he said, tell him I'm thinking about him. I'm watching him on TV. Uh, so he, he was, he, he loved the feeling that he was, he was interested in the team and he wanted them to know it. It also, every time I mentioned on the air, it kept his, his name alive down there in the sports field. So one day uh, I looked up in the stands and I saw it was a double header and I was doing work on both radio and TV and I, I saw him come in and I went up before the game and I said, uh, I said, Mr. Nixon, uh, I'd love to do an interview with you today, but before I do, I want to ask you not to reveal who you are till I get to that point in the interview. You'll just be a fan in the stands, okay? I said, sure, anything you want. So we did about a seven- or eight-minute interview, and near the end I said, well, it's a delight. I usually speak to the, the managers or the coaches or the players, but just speaking to a fan in the stands, so I'm going to ask, what do you do? And he said, yeah, I work for the government. And I said, well, of course, people in Washington, so many work for the government. What do you do? He said, I work for the president. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, what sort of a job do you have? He said, I'm the vice president. Uh, you know, and, and that, that story got the first page of the Washington Post, went around the country on the Associated Press. It was it was just a fun thing to do, and he, he played as part of it being the, the secondary guy very well. Now, you got to watch a lot of bad senator teams, but you yeah. got to watch some great players. Who were some of your favorites? Well, with the senators, you know, they really had no money in that operation. Clark Griffith was the owner, and Clark Griffith lived in a very modest home. He made his money playing baseball, but nobody made any money playing baseball in the early days. The big salary then was five or 6000 a year. So most of the ball players worked in the offseason as shoe salesman or whatever, driving taxis or whatever. But uh, with the senators, Clark Griffith did most of the personal scouting. He knew evaluating of talent. But 
one of the things I did there was I had to keep the games interesting for the full nine innings of the ball game because the sponsors wanted to make sure people kept listening or watching the games. So um, I had my own little tricks. For example, I'd, if you tuned in in the middle of the game, I'd say, well, folks, it's 18-2. to two. Now we move into the uh, eighth inning. I never said which team was winning or losing. <laughs> Didn't have to. I already knew which team was winning or losing. But they did have a lot of stars, they, but they couldn't afford more than two or three. So, so the rest guys just sort of filled in the group. But the stars that they had were just terrific. I mean, Harmon Killebrew, Bob Allison, Camilo Pasquale, Jim Lemon, on and on. There were always two or three big stars to talk about. If you have the stars, you can always draw people. You covered the greatest football game in NFL history, the 58 championship between the Colts and the Giants. When that game went into overtime, did you have any idea that there was going to be overtime, or did it shock you as a broadcaster? There was a little note in the press releases uh, somewhere that I had read saying they had never had an overtime NFL championship game. So uh, at least I had that in the back of my mind. But before that happened, the game had to be tied, and the, the Colts were trailing by three points, and I had the, the climax of the regulation time when Steve Myra with the seconds ticking away, seven seconds left to go, the boot's up in the air. It's good. Game is tied. We're going into overtime. And uh, so the regulation game ended 17-17, and that brought in the first overtime in the NFL championships. And here I had the chance to yell, and, and Myra score, uh, Amici scores, and... And the Colts win the game. The, the Colts are the world champions. Amici scores. And that was the second time. So that game got such national attention, and it deserved to be, that that really was what made the game. The game was exciting tremendously with all-stars on both sides. But the fact that it had such an impact on the viewers and the listeners and the sponsors, then they clamored to be on there. The advertisers came out, the network started bidding, and that was the turning point for pro football. Before then, pro football drew five, six, ten thousand a game, and that was about it. Now, how did that game compare to the 1956 World Series when you got to call Don Larson's perfect game for the Yankees against the Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, the, the Colts-Giants game was like a, a team effort, even though we had the individual stars and there were poles of famer on both sides. But with the... Uh, the Larson game, that was an individual achievement, which had never been done before in a World Series and has not been done since. Somebody may do it someday, but they can't beat it. They can only tie it if it's a perfect game in the World Series. But that, to me, was a fantastic break, getting that game to do. on Both those games were at Yankee Stadium. I, I love to do events there because it, in itself it was exciting to broadcast in the stadium. I've done three World Series there that the Yankees have won, so I've had good memories in the stadium as well. But for that one, the big thing I had to remember was not to become a fan watching the game, because if I had just thought about what may happen, I guess I might stumble or meander in a different direction. The job was to keep concentrating, so I, I gave myself continual pep talks, concentrate, just do the game, which I did, you know, calling the a great picture in the game. You know, Yogi Bear runs out, leaps on Larson, surrounded by his teammates, listen to this crowd roar, and et cetera. I, I think I captured the picture pretty well on, on that call, and it's been on all the highlight records since then. But uh, I felt after the game, 
I sort of pitched that last half inning with Larson because my body was so taut and and my arm had an ache in it. I felt that uh, I really pitched the last half inning with him. <laughs> Who was your favorite person to interview? Oh, I, I've enjoyed so many. I think the most unusual was Ted Williams. And maybe George Steinbrenner was next. Why was Ted Williams? Because Ted Williams in Boston was viewed so much by the press as being eccentric. And in many ways, his eccentricity was the fact that he tried so hard to be perfect that he always felt the spotlight was on him. And it was. When he took batting practice, everybody on either side stopped what they were doing to watch the master in action. He viewed himself as being the epitome of the greatest hitter, and in most cases he was. But if he did not do well in batting practice, this is batting practice, he'd storm out of the cage, you're in front of him, he'd, he'd knock you out of the way, he was surly, he wouldn't speak, he'd swear. He, he was just unbelievable to be around. Well, I soon learned to look at his mood first before I spoke to him. So uh, every year I say, how's he feeling before I, before I interviewed him on the air? Uh, to his teammates, they give me the clue, or I just watch him. I can see what it was, his facial contortions were. And one day, I had a microphone in my hand. I did interviews before and after all the radio and all the TV shows all re were recorded. And I went by with a mic, and he saw me coming, and I could see the, the grimaces he was making and the scowls and whatnot. He was sort of like making a spectacle of saying, keep away from me. So after the game was over in the locker room, I said, Ted, look, you stop making these faces, will you? I can just just say hello to you. I consider you a friend. I'm not going to interview all the time, and I had no idea even trying today. So tell you what, you tell me when it's good to interview. The rest of the time, I was coming by to have a friendly chat. He said, okay, if I'm hitting, he gave me the number of home runs or batting average the next time he came to Washington. He said, interview me then. So that next time happened to be after he got in a tiff up there in Boston, he got so angry that after he came across the plate on a home run, he thumbed his nose at the press box, he spit on home plate, he, he made the same gestures to the fans, was promptly fined $5,000, and said in the press he would never do another press interview, TV or radio interview to anybody because he didn't like the way they treated him. So when he came to Washington, I said, Ted, you promised me if you hit these, these homers or this average, you go on with me. But I said, <laughs> i got to tell you this. If you live up to your promise, my promise to my team that I worked for, to the, to the, the station and the TV station, my promise is to always ask the reporters questions. And i got to ask you about what your actions were. If not, I'm not doing my job. So you got to tell me. If you don't go on, I just won't mention it. If, if you do go on, i got to ask you that question. So it's up to you. He said, what time do you want me? I told him, where do you want me? He said, how about my questions? Anything you want. So he came over, and we did that interview, and he confessed how contrite he was. He said, sometimes some of the things written about him get him so stirred up that he just unleashes his, his torrent of words. He should never do it, but he understood how people don't enjoy that, and he doesn't either, so it won't happen again. But he said, Bob, the only reason I'm speaking to you on the air is because you've been so fair to me, and I'm going to continue for as long as you want. So it had a very, very nice ending to my show, and I used that show in an interview with Mickey Mantle, brought it up to New York, 
sold it to Channel 11, which carried the Yankees. They said I do a series for them of interviews. They use it as a Yankee pregame show. The Red Sox use it as their pregame show. Kansas City and so on around the major leagues. So it turned out to be a very happy interview in the long run. Do you have any advice for uh, people who want to be broadcasters coming up today? Be themselves, because everybody is unique. You can have a strange voice. You can have a different thing than doing it than somebody else. But think of some little different way you can do it. And above all, think of your content. It's not just speaking. It's doing something a little different when you speak that, that holds the attention of people. There are a lot of people on the air don't sound like broadcasters, but you want to listen to them. A lot of other people that, who wear particularly well to become your electronic friends. But you've got to prove this to somebody. So eventually you've got to make a, a TV or a radio tape so you can say, look, here's what I can do. And then you've got to work at sort of uh, selling yourself. That's a big part of the game. And above all, you have a lot of luck. A lot of people are trying for the jobs, but there are more now than ever because there is regional TV and regional radio and local radio and local TV and all sorts of networks. Of course, if you get to a network, you, you, you won the prize because if you get them the network that carries the games, you're going to do them. Who's your favorite broadcaster today? I don't have any really favorite, but I got a lot of people. that I, The guys who are doing it right now are terrific guys. I mean, I, most of them get there because they deserved it. Some get there just because they have a certain appeal. But the people that I particularly like are people like uh, Bob Costas and uh, Jim Nance, and Mike Green in New York. Uh, there, there are a lot of, lot of good ones. I like the guys who get excited when they should, but stay calm. There's nothing to get excited about. A lot of the young broadcasters today, hearing some of the guys go apoplectic on radio, think that it's strike one, they get a strike one, ball one, they, they got to go crazy, but they don't see the, the big emotion for when it really counts. And emotion is a very big part of broadcasting. If you sound emotional on the air and you get involved in it, that's a great plus two. Now, there's a kid out in Los Angeles covering the Dodgers. Vin Scully does a, a pretty nice job out there. Vin is one of the old-time guys where the voice counted, and Vin has the best voice of them all, sort of a poetic voice. He goes up and down <laughs> in, his, in his cadence, and his rhythm. He likes to work by himself because he likes to control the pace of the game. So he's one of the very few broadcasters in the country who's allowed to not work with a partner but do it all himself. But I want to give you credit, though, because when Gillette was doing those World Series games, they would take a National League broadcaster from the team. They would take an American League broadcaster from the team. So every year it was Vince Scully. Mel Allen, and you know what? You were covering the Senators, and they picked you, and that shows how good of a broadcaster you were because they got to choose the third broadcaster. Well, basically, I was very fortunate because I had it. By this time, I started doing TV in 1946, and by this time, I was well acquainted with how you do uh, TV and radio. But uh, Vin was sort of new to the TV, and he did, he under stated the, the World Series game in the Don Larson no-hitter that year. He was working on, on the TV and I was on the radio. Uh, he understated it. So he said he said in a newspaper article a few years ago that had I done it again, I would have been a lot smarter about TV. I would have given it more emotion. But the emotion that I put into it seemed to go over pretty well with the sponsor, the Gillette Safety Razor Company, because when they put out uh, videos and audios of the game, 
the Major League Baseball Productions now includes my radio call as well as his TV call. There's a difference. Vin uh, did it sort of a, in a muted sort of way, and I did it with emotion. Now, did you enjoy bas- covering the Knicks as much as baseball? You know, every sport that I did, I realized that their fans were just just immersed in the history of that sport and their team and so forth. They like love affairs with these guys. So uh, I, I, every sport I did, I enjoyed. But the basketball team with the Knicks was something special because those were the, that was the most unselfish team I'd ever seen. Those guys cared far more about uh, the assist than they did about who made the points. So with the two Knicks championships I covered uh, are both on TV. None of those players were in the top ten in scoring. But, boy, the crowd gave him a wonderful reception with a great pass, the great defensive play, hitting the open man. And all of those guys were as adept at moving the ball as a good second-base shortstop combination. So, to me, it was great to see guys who cared about the team first and, and scoring second. You give Brent Musburger a lot of props because you said he keeps reinventing himself, and that's what you need to do as a broadcaster. He, <laughs> he changes his style all the time. Well, he's, each style seemed to work for him. The present style seems to be just just what he needed. In the beginning, he, I thought he was a little too hysterical, but when people got on him for that, then he became a little too silent. But he found a medium a middle path, and I think he, he does exceedingly well with it. The test is, do you keep coming back? He keeps coming back. Now, there's one broadcaster who stands out because he was so different, especially in his time, and that's Howard Cosell. If Howard Cosell came along today, where would he fit in? (laughs) Well, since that time, with with talk radio that you guys do so very well, since that time, you're allowed to straight your opinions, right? Right. Okay, well, that's an important part of of your personality on what you do. And Howard was the one who made stressing his personality a a big part of his act. I'm not sure it was always an act, but it was something that that made him famous. Uh, Howard and I uh, were very friendly because we both worked at ABC at the time. He was doing a lot of radio stuff, and I was there doing all their, their TV on the network. So we we, uh, we sat very close to each other in the ABC offices. But uh, Howard loved to shock people. Uh, I think I read in the book, uh, he, 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 he would attend every press conference that he could, always made himself known by, by for example, one day he yelled at the, the commissioner of basketball. He said, Commissioner, I'm just tired of defending your prejudices. Uh, when are you going to step down from this job? Commissioner would say, oh, I guess Howard arrived. We might as well begin. I mean, they they were wise to what he did. He he loved that. He also loved interviewing people where he could use two or three, four syllable words, knowing that most of the ball players couldn't understand him. So uh, he, he showed off his what I consider to be his intelligence. But he certainly was the only broadcaster I knew that really could attract two crowds. He was honored one year as the most popular broadcaster in the country, and the same year he got the prize as the least popular broadcaster in the country. And by winning both awards, the sponsors were thrilled because they now had two audiences, which gave them more people to to advertise to, and they loved to have him on the air. So he was unique. He set a a path in 
investigative reporting, the way that he, he asked questions. And he, he, he didn't worry about uh, being diplomatic. He, he'd ask a guy, aren't you ready to retire after that miserable performance you did today? The guy would be shocked. What do you mean? Howard? Yeah, you're through, he'd say. <laughs> that was Howard Cassell. But I found him with me, the most diplomatic and gentle guy you could ever find. So apparently, for whatever reason, he just he felt maybe I wasn't worth fooling with, or, or maybe there was some other reason. I want to give our producer credit, Dave Olson. He recommended we get you on today, and he said, Dave, this guy will give you more knowledge than anybody you've ever had on, and he was absolutely right. <laughs> I just wish we had a two-hour show. I, uh, I'm flattered that you were pleased. I, the stuff you told us, I mean, I don't think you're ever going to hear this stuff again because today's sportscasters, a lot of them are homogenized. <laughs> they are that. So we better oh, pick up Bob Wolf's complete guide to broadcasting. Thank you very much, Mr. Wolf. It was a pleasure having you on. Well, I tell you what, guys, if you enjoy it, whether we're on the air or not, give me a call. I'll keep going. And I'm going to tell people, <laughs> like, buy your book, Bob Wolf's Complete Guide to Sportscasting. Good. Thanks so very much. Thank you very much. There was Hall of Famer, not only the baseball, but also the basketball Hall of Fame, Bob Wolf. How's he not get into the football Hall of Fame? I don't know. I think that's next. Okay. Again, you're listening to Sports and Torts. I mean, Elliot, we had another great show today. I mean, we had... A female softball player, Taryn Mowat, on, and we had one of the greatest sports kids of all time, Bob Wolf. I don't know how we improve upon that, but we'll try next week. Again, thank you for listening to Sports and Torts. I'm David Spader with Elliot Harris. Stay tuned again next week. Thank you.